Right, there we go. Good morning. It is lovely to see you all here this morning. Um, as Lizzie said, I'm Morag. I'm also one of the home group's leaders here at Kingdom Vineyard. And just to say, you are so welcome. We keep saying it, but we actually do mean it. We are so welcome. And uh, as you've already seen, what an amazing Easter season we've had here. We've had healings, baptisms, precious times in the presence of God. And last week, we headed back to our series of talks in Acts, where, funnily enough, you see healings, baptisms, and precious times in the presence of God. I wonder where we got the idea from. <laughs> Although, saying that, we haven't been in a particularly happy time for the new believers in Acts. After the death of Stephen, persecution of the church and of the believers kicks in big time, coordinated and driven by a man named Saul. But spoiler alert, look out for an amazing plot twist with him coming soon. <laughs> the persecution drives many of the believers away from Jerusalem, with just the apostles remaining put for now. As Zach so wonderfully put it last week, the apostles, the sent ones, send out the scattered ones. These scattered ones carry on the work that the apostles have trained them for wherever they go. They've, they do what they've seen the apostles doing. Philip finds himself in Samaria, and so he starts preaching Jesus there and performs signs and wonders, and many people are healed. So that's where we're going to pick up today. I'm going to backtrack over a few verses from last week and then continue on in chapter 8. Um, Jenna's going to come and read our passage for today, which is Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. Yep. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city." But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time. He had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, 
so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. That was great. Um, let me find my place now. Philip, you might remember, was one of those who was selected to deal with the distribution of food back at the beginning of chapter 6, if you want to check it out. He seems to have come a long way since then, both physically, geographically, and in terms of what he's getting up to. And as Zach pointed out last week, Samaria was a bit of a dodgy place to end up with racial and religious tensions between them and the rest of Israel. There was a reason that Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan was so shocking. There'd be many Jews who would not believe that Samaritans could be any good. But the Holy Spirit is at work, and Philip is able to preach and perform signs and wonders so that the people there believed in Jesus and are baptized. And then enters a strange character into the picture, Simon the Magician, or Simon the Sorcerer, or Simon Magus, as he's sometimes referred to. He was the previous show in town. He was the one performing signs and wonders and holding the attention of the people, but he was self-proclaimed. He declared himself someone great. And originally, the people agreed with him until Philip came along and told them about someone greater, Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The point to be aware of here is that signs and wonders were not outside of the experience of these people. Simon could do tricks. The difference was the source. The people recognized there was something more in Jesus. Even Simon recognized there was something different that he wanted to be a part of too, and he believes and gets baptized. This all sounds good. He starts following Philip around, attracted by the miracles that Philip is performing. Okay, maybe we're starting to stray into dangerous territory, seeking the gifts and not the giver. And finally, we become aware of Simon's motives and the state of heart when Peter and John come to town. Peter and John are in town because they've heard that the Samaritans have received the word and are believing in Jesus. They've come to check it out. Like I said, there were marked tensions between Jews and Samaritans, and they probably come to verify the claims and see for themselves. Has God really opened up the kingdom beyond the traditional boundaries of the people of God? Maybe they have in mind the words of Jesus in Acts 1 verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they're thinking, it's starting. But when they get there, they find that the believers haven't received the Holy Spirit. 
this might come as a bit of a surprise to some of us who thought that the Holy Spirit comes whenever someone believes in Jesus, that conversion. However, it doesn't seem to phase the apostles. They realize the situation, lay hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes and fills the new believers. So what should we do with that? Does the Holy Spirit come when people first believe? Yes. Again, spoiler alert, wait till you see what happens to Cornelius in a couple of chapters. Do people believe and the Holy Spirit come on them and fill them in a separate event? Yes, as today's passage shows us. Does the Holy Spirit come on and fill people who have believed and been filled before? Yes. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter and John are released by the Sanhedrin, they come back together and with the other believers for a prayer meeting. And it says there, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I'm pretty sure Peter and John, at least, had already been filled with the Holy Spirit, but they were all filled again. I think the point is, let's not get too tied up on the hows, whys, and wherefores. The Holy Spirit doesn't often fit into any boxes or boundaries or formulas that we might like to put on him. All I know is, the Holy Spirit can and does come on people in power. Anyway, back to Simon. He sees what happens when the apostles lay hands on people and recognizes the impact that the Holy Spirit has. He wants this ability to lay hands on people and have them experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Not bad in itself, but he offers them money. Not good. It's a sign of his unreformed heart. He's got it, but he's not got it. The apostles call him out on it. This is how it's put in the message. When Simon saw that the apostles, by merely laying on hands, conferred the Spirit, he pulled out his money, excited, and said, sell me your secret. Show me how you did that. How much do you want? Name your price. And Peter said, to hell with you and your money. <laughs> Why, that's unthinkable trying to buy God's gift. You'll never be a part of what God is doing by striking bargains and offering bribes. Change your ways and now. Ask the master to forgive you for trying to use God to make money. I can see that this is an old habit with you. You reek with money lust. Oh, Simon, said Simon, pray for me. Pray to the master that nothing like that will ever happen to me. It's easy to dismiss this story as the story of an evil sorcerer who's after the gift of gods for money. Boo! <laughs> like a pantomime villain. But maybe we should examine our own motives too when we are seeking the gifts of the Spirit. You'll never be a part of what God is doing by striking bargains and offering bribes. God if you just do this one thing for me, then I'll be all in. If you just give me the gift of prophecy, then I'll go out in the streets. If you just, then I'll. Old habits die hard, not just for Simon, but for all of us. God's got a work to do in all of us 
to clear out baggage that we've picked up along the way. Misunderstandings, wrong theology, warped expectations. Pray for me, says Simon. Pray for me, says Morag. We don't know where, whether Simon was changed and reformed. It's the last we hear of him. But I kind of hope so. Simon was on the extreme. He was after the power, but had forgotten to work on his character. He was looking for outward signs, the miraculous, the healings, the supernatural phenomenon, but wasn't willing to let the Holy Spirit do his work on the inside too. Although I hope Simon got there eventually. It's an accusation that has been made of the vineyard and of any church where there are physical and visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit, that we are only after the phenomena without the substance, the gifts without the giver, or the works without the word. I went to university in 1993. I know I don't look old enough, but that it was weird. And I started going with friends to a charismatic house church. And I think um, it was around 1994, we started to hear about a move of the Holy Spirit in Toronto, Canada, which became, to know, became known as the Toronto Blessing. Some of the people in our church and other charismatic churches that we were linked with went over to Toronto, and some of the leaders there came over to the UK, and this thing was spreading. Um, it was characterized by a lot of physical phenomena. The main one that I remember was um, people falling over or being slain in the spirit, as they would call it. The spirit would come and people would fall over. Some when they were being prayed for and some just where they stood. They needed to be catchers behind everyone. But still, cheers would go flying as, as people were overcome. Then there would be laughing or being drunk in the spirit, overwhelming joy that just couldn't be contained. And this could last for hours. And at that time, I remember people being carried out to the cars to get them home. Sunday nights were never an early night. These gatherings would go on for hours. It was an amazing time. People who were slain in the spirit or falling over would come off the floor changed. There was new life in them. The experience of joy and laughter was freeing. There was inner work to show for the outer signs. But, but I had a problem. I had absolutely no framework for this. I had come from a Church of Scotland background, for which I am extremely grateful. But this stuff was so beyond any of my experiencing or experience or thinking. I began to get uncomfortable with the teaching at some of these meetings. If you only have enough faith, slightly worrying, if you only put enough in the offering basket, no, 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 that was me, I'm out, I'm out. I couldn't reconcile the teaching and the phenomena. One was not explaining the other. And to be honest, I was more uncomfortable with the teaching as I could genuinely see the fruit of some of the phenomena. So I sought better teaching. I found a wonderful evangelical church near my home in Glasgow where the teaching was superb. The biblical content was great and my understanding of the Bible grew massively. I had words and frameworks for my beliefs, 
But at that church, there was absolutely no space for the Holy Spirit. There was what I thought a strange tension there, believing that God was all-powerful and could do anything, and the prayer meetings were brilliant, but the expectation of God actually doing anything was really low. He used to do that, but he doesn't now. Although not actually taught, was the experience and the expectation. Ha. At that point, I thought, I'm going to have to choose. I have to choose whether to be with the weird and wacky bunch and experience the presence of God, or to be with the dry and slightly disillusioned bunch who could give me understanding and a love of the Bible. Then I discovered the vineyard. Thank you, God. The vineyard, this is, it's my tribe. I, I love it. And this is why I'm here. Because I found somewhere that worshipped God with music I loved, where I could feel the presence of God, where people prayed for healing and saw people get better, that believe, believed God speaks today to and through his followers, and explained it all from the Bible. This is the DNA. This is the reason for being and the core legacy of the vineyard. There's a book about the history of the vineyard and it tells of the situations and people that, that brought about the movement and it's called The Quest for the Radical Middle. The Radical Middle, where the baby is not thrown out with the bathwater, where experience and teaching can meet. And this is a quote from that book. History shows that the word without the spirit quickly becomes dead orthodoxy. And the spirit without the word quickly becomes cultish. The challenge is, as it always has been, to affirm both word and spirit and aim for the radical middle. This means we live with a few tensions, a few mysteries. We live, as Jim has previously explained, as both evangelicals asserting the rock-solid foundations of the scriptures and as charismatics welcoming and practicing the gifts of the Spirit. We live with the kingdom now and not yet. Or, Caitlin, inaugurated, enacted <laughs> eschatology. She loves that phrase. Anyway, it just means kingdom now and not yet. So we believe that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. He started it. But it won't be fully consummated, seen in all its fullness, until he comes again. This gives us attention, but it gives us something to help wrap our heads around that there is suffering in the world, and not everyone is healed. We can avoid, hopefully, the extremes of triumphalism, which says that the kingdom is now, it's all here, and it's our problem when someone suffers or doesn't get healed. We're just not doing it right. And the other extreme of defeatism, that there's nothing that we can do that will make a difference. And we just need to stay as separate from the world as we can until Jesus comes back and does everything. There's an excellent talk on the Vineyard UK website by Steve Nicholson called The Legacy of the Holy Spirit in the Vineyard, 
which Jane Horsborough has already helpfully put a link on on the Kingdom Vineyard Facebook page. Thank you, Jane. He has 10 points that he makes about how the work of the Holy Spirit is characterized in the vineyard. And I'd like you to take you through them all now. Uh, no, no, I won't bother. <laughs> we don't, yeah, no, we don't have time. No, go and watch the video when you can. Um, but I do just want to highlight a couple of things. Steve's first point, and it's the point that I've been trying to make, is that we are rooted in the theology of the kingdom. It's not a theology of faith. That is, we believe that the work of the Holy Spirit is inbreaking, the kingdom breaking through, and is not based on a method or formula. When Simon asks in our passage, what's your secret? We don't have one. It's all about him and not about us. There's a guy who gets mentioned around here from time to time, and his name is John Wimber. He's credited as the founder of the vineyard. But I would suggest he was the guy who God got to communicate what he was up to with this particular corner of his church. You might have heard this story before, but um, after being challenged by teaching through Luke, John Wimber realized that praying for healing should be the norm for Christians in the church. So they started praying for the sick and nothing happened for 10 months. John was at the point of giving up, but a friend called and asked him to come over and pray for his wife. John went over with low expectations, prayed a prayer with very little faith, and even started to explain to his friend why healings don't always happen, when he realized that his friend's wife had got up out of bed and was completely healed. On his drive home, John had a vision that he saw as a, a cloud bank that looked odd, but he realized it wasn't a cloud bank, it was a honeycomb dripping with honey, dripping on all the people beneath it. John asked the Lord what it was, and God said to him, it was his mercy, the abundance of his mercy, that there is plenty for everyone if you can learn to receive it, if you can learn how to partner with the Holy Spirit. It's all about mercy and not works. It's all about him and not us. I think I'm going to come into land, I think. But I just want to share, you can't shut me up this morning. Um, share one more point from Steve Nicholson. Um, we're not about superstars. When we, when we first thought about this passage and we thought it might be a good chance uh, to share some of the history of the vineyard, I was so up for it. You know, this is my tribe, I love it. Uh, so I thought, I will tell the people, the giants of the faith, on whose shoulders we stand. I will tell them of the mighty John Wimber and his quest for the radical middle. <laughs> then I reread the book and realized we don't stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of ordinary men and women who believed what God was saying to them and gave it a go. They got it right sometimes. They got it wrong sometimes. And they were willing to learn. You know what that means? We can do it too. As I said, John Wimber got to communicate what God was doing in the vineyard corner of God's church. And some of the best bits of his legacy are his sayings. You might have heard this one. Everyone gets to play. 
We want to be an army of ordinary people willing to partner with the Holy Spirit in bringing the kingdom to our families, friends, workplaces, and maybe if we have to, our church. Another of his sayings was, keep your cookies on the low shelf. Don't make things unnecessarily hard for people. You don't need to have a theology master's or attended the right number of church services or home groups. You need to have a pulse and be willing. Then God can use you. And finally, uh, my brother is not my enemy. I've heard Toby say this so many times. I love the vineyard. I also love the Church of Scotland, the Free Church, the Baptists, the Anglicans. The vineyard is where I feel most at home right now. But we are not perfect. We do not have all the answers. We are simply a vegetable, a flavor in the stew that is the Lord's church. We are all simply seeking to become more like Jesus and deepen our relationship with him. We love that wherever we find it, whatever the sign above the door says. You are really going to have to shut me up this morning. But I do want to kind of make sure that we do have time for ministry. Um, but before I can, before I can shut up, um, I'm going to borrow a bit more from Steve Nicholson. Seriously, watch that video. It's very, very helpful. There's a few other things from the legacy of the work of the Holy Spirit in the vineyard that will help us right now for this time of ministry. First thing is prayers, those who are praying, are midwives, helping people to receive the Spirit's work. Once again, it's not about us. It's all about him. And we believe, actually, we know that the Holy Spirit's work can be seen physically with your ordinary eyes. We can't see the Spirit, but like the wind... You can't see it, but you can see its effects and you can feel its effects. So we pray for people with our eyes open. That's why we do that. And bless what God is doing. When you see it, bless that. It's a great prayer. Lord, I bless what you're doing. And I got that one from Jean Horsburgh as well. <laughs> you can have it too. It's a good one. <laughs> and finally, waiting is necessary. We did it this morning at the end of worship. It can be uncomfortable, especially for those of us leading the service. We all think, don't we, that, uh, that that's it. This morning will be the one, one time he doesn't show up. Nothing's going to happen. But he does. And we wait on him. And we start to engage and give him permission. He is a gent. And he doesn't come where he's not welcome. But he is welcome here. Why don't you stand and we'll give this a go?